Joanna, do you ever wish you could definitively prove that you had the right opinions about movies? Uh, yeah, Neil, because I do have the right opinions about movies and television. Right, Dave? No, because I'm more right about those things, and I demand trial by content. Oh boy, what is trial by content? Each week, we'll take on a huge question. Each of us will bring a choice and combined with listener submissions and your votes, we will come to a decision. It's trial by content every Tuesday on Spotify, TheRinger.com, or wherever you're listening right now. Don't let Neil win. Don't let Dave win. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. A special guest this week, a very, very, very funny guy. Um, and he's been funny for a long time too, but also not just funny, just very insightful. If you've read any of his uh, columns in the New Yorker or some of his books and he always hits the target and, and, uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing him for a while now, but this latest book guys, it's hilarious and scary. It's one of those funny, scary things at the same time. Cause it's true. It's true. <laughs> it's profiles and ignorance. How America's politicians got dumb and dumber. Andy Borowitz, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. It's so nice to see you. Larry, it is so cool to be with you. And it's an honor. And, um, you know, I've known you for a long time, but this is probably the longest conversation you and I have ever had. Probably. And I would tell people our first intersection that wasn't quite an intersection because it is interesting. Yes. So, and I don't know if we, I think... I I'm think aware. you remember. You know I'm what I'm going to say, right? Okay, so I was on an episode of The Facts of Life at the beginning of my career that was written by Andy Burroughs. And I think Susan at the time, too. I didn't guess co wrote it. No, no, it's just, just me. you. Okay. No, so, I was, I was, the only, I was on staff. At you were on Facts staff. She came later from Fresh Prince, right? Yeah. Okay, so you wrote the episode, and I played a character named Officer Ziakis, right? And Ziakis was a friend of yours from Harvard. Is that right? That is right. Right. Lithuanian. Lithuanian. (laughs) Who would be the perfect guy to enact a Lithuanian police? Exactly. Larry Larry Wilmer. There you go. That was my first. According to type. I know. It's a first TV gig. And I used to talk, people used to call me Ziakis for a long time. (laughs) I don't know if I ever told you that part of it because it was such an enjoyment. Hey, Ziakis, you know, people that knew me. You know, know, I have a similar um, story that's a little bit more high profile. I don't mean to overshadow your officer Ziakas, uh, story. Yes. but when I, I was working on the pilot of Fresh Prince yeah. and we wanted to come up with the character of the cousin, Will's cousin, who was going to be kind of his foil and be very preppy. Sure. My best friend in college, or one of my closest friends was this gentleman named Carlton Cuse, much like oh, the, wow. uh, the John Ziakas situation. So I thought, well, it'd be really funny to name the cousin after Carlton. And so then, of course, Carlton becomes a very famous character, and the dance that he does becomes yes. like you know very famous. The Carlton iconic yes. name. So years later, Carlton Cuse, for those who don't know, is like a very big time Hollywood TV producer. I was just going to ask: Is it the same Carlton? The Cuse? Same Carlton. Wow. He produced Lost and and all these yes. other things. And when he started working on Lost with like Damon Lindelof, the, who is the co-creator of Lost, Damon met Carlton, and thinking that he was being original. He said, yes. hey, Carlton, do the Carlton, man. Do the Carlton. 
And so everybody, I mean, I've, I've ruined my wow. life because now whenever anybody meets Carlton Cuse, they say, do the Carlton, not realizing that he was the actual inspiration for Carlton. This is what you do. You take people from your life, Andy, and you slowly destroy them by <laughs> making them infamous. <laughs> That's very cool. Such an interesting intersections, though. It's kind of what writers do. We, you know, not all, it's always names, but we certainly always put, uh, you know, people in our lives yeah. on the page and on the screen. We do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the book. So this is a... <sighs> It's not satire. No, no. <laughs> and what's great is that you're you're a great satirist, one of the best of our times. You know, it's more of a recent history lesson, right? Yeah. So, what what was the genesis? What what made you think? You know, what? I've got to tell people how dumb people are. Well, I, I <laughs> sort of describe it as a funny history book. That's how I describe it. Right. It's not satire. Uh, I think it's a little more scary than funny. Well, I'll tell you, Larry. <laughs> there was a review of it that I really liked, where a guy said. It makes you laugh, cry, and swear at the same time. And I think that's, wow. that's kind of the, that's the appropriate response because mm-hmm. it is very, I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff because I'm quoting, when you quote really dumb people, they tend to say yeah. funny things. Dan Quayle and Sarah Palin, those are two great comedy writers that I had at my beck and call. But, yeah. um, you know, speaking of Sarah, so like the genesis really was that a couple years ago, about three years ago, I was on a comedy tour called... Mm-hmm make America not embarrassing again. And Mm -hmm. I was talking about Sarah Palin and the advent of Sarah Palin and the interview that Katie Couric did with her. And at one point, Katie Couric said, can you name one Supreme Court decision besides Roe v. Wade that you disagree with? And uncharacteristically, Sarah Palin, who usually spewed sentences of 200 to 300 words length, was struck dumb. She was silent. She couldn't think of a single one. And I was like, you can't keep, you know, you can't come up with anything, really. I mean, Ali versus yeah. Frazier. I mean, you can't think of a certain. And <laughs> and so I started thinking about how Sarah Palin. I was going to say, ironically, her answer is kind of the what people are saying about the Dobbs decision mm-hmm. now, which is kind of ironic when you look at that answer. Yeah, now. it's a it's a state's rights thing. Type of, type yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing, whatever. So what does that got to do with what she actually asked you? As we as we learn or relearn in the book. Sarah Palin knows nothing. She just knows she's vacuous. That's what her campaign manager said. Steve Uh Schmidt, who was her campaign manager in the McCain campaign, after they named her, after they supposedly vetted her, he sat down with her and his horrified reaction was, and it's a direct quote, is he said, she doesn't know anything. So that was Mm -hmm. who they were putting forth to be one heartbeat away from president. John McCain, as you know, is not in the most robust health. So it was a really... They were really rolling the dice with the entire United States of America. But anyway, Sarah Palin, I did some jokes about her and I realized that Sarah Palin's place in history was important because she was the gateway idiot who led to Donald Trump. Because she really, once you see a person like that on the national stage, it lowers the bar so far that it makes it plausible Mm -hmm. that a guy who's like a clown who hosts a reality show um, could be president. I mean, it just, it really did a lot of damage in a way that, I mean, because Sarah Palin's a joke and because Tina Fey was so funny about Sarah Palin, we kind of lost track of the fact that she actually played a really dangerous role in the brief time she was on the, you know, on the Mm -hmm. public stage. So during lockdown, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, where did this trend of, you know, not dumb politicians, because we've always had. Absolutely. I was just going to say. I mean, like, mm-hmm. when I was growing up in Cleveland, we had a mayor named Ralph Perk, 
who set his hair on fire. And, um, <laughs> That's kind of brilliant, actually. Well, yeah. it's on YouTube. So you can check uh-huh. it out. At, you know, when we're done with this, you can just lay. It's pretty funny. He was like presiding okay. over a um, trade show about metals in Cleveland. That was the kind of excitement we had in Cleveland when I was growing up before sure. LeBron, you know, and, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, he set his hair on fire. And this was like a couple of years after the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. So it was polluted river. Yeah, or whatever very polluted, yeah. just uh-huh. spontaneously combusted. Yeah, so, spontaneously combusted. That's not right. good. It's not good. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, you know, if your river catches on fire, that's. But if your mayor Mm -hmm. also catches on fire, that starts to hurt tourism because, you know, it's like this is a city aflame. It's not like he's Michael Jackson. You don't just (laughs) like your hair on fire. (laughs) Yeah, that's different when his hair is on fire. Very different. Or Richard Pryor's hair on fire. A lot of people, you know, we're more Mm -hmm. flammable than we think, aren't we? Uh, Completely. Yeah. So anyway, you know, we've had dumb politicians. That's not new. But what was new um, when I really started doing some research, like during lockdown, I just got every book I could find on this subject mm-hmm. with the rise of television, which really happened in politics in 1960 with the Kennedy Nixon debates where people really yeah. figured out the TV was going to be incredibly powerful. One of the first guys who figured that out actually was Roger Ailes, who became Richard Nixon's campaign manager mm-hmm. in 1968. He knew what you could do with TV. And mm-hmm. so there were all these Republican millionaires in California, who were really distraught that Nixon, who at this point was terrible on TV, had lost the gubernatorial race in 62. So they kind of tried to reverse engineer the problem. They said, instead of finding a politician who's really knowledgeable, which like it or not, Nixon was, and teach him how to be good on TV, let's just find somebody who's really good on TV, and then we'll kind of load facts into him, like with a beer funnel. And we'll, we'll make him just knowledgeable enough that he's a plausible candidate. And that was Ronald Reagan. It's kind of what they do with the monarchy a little bit, yes. you know, where if the bloodline is the most important thing, we'll give you just enough knowledge <laughs> to get by. Because yes. I think uh, Elizabeth resented her education. I heard, uh, I heard once where it's like she wanted a better education than what was being offered her. Right. Uh, I heard her talk about, but because she was in that line of succession, they're like, no, 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 we'll give you just enough to not get you in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I'm over, I'm exaggerating, but that's pretty much how the education worked for, for well, them. Well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the thing about, about Reagan was that he was not well read. He had read like one book, literally. Wow. That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. And, and he's that's been, amazing. he's really been misremembered, Larry. I think very yeah. much. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, I was going to ask you this. So, because I like what you said about television, which is interesting to me. Um, and, and I want to go down a line too of why this happened in the Republican party, not the democratic party so much. I mean, it really shows up in a big way in the Republican party, but do you think TV really is this factor that we haven't considered and how powerful image is to getting people elected. I'll give you an example of this. Like I ran for like school vice president when I was in high school. I didn't know anything. I told jokes, Andy. That's all I did. <laughs> I did impressions of the teachers. I won in a landslide. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And to you were me, Donald, you were Donald Trump, Larry. That's exactly right. But I had nothing, you know, I mean, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't dumb. You know, I knew how things work, but I didn't run as a smart candidate. I just 
was funny and people liked me and I got elected and I never ran again, but it was kind of like, for me, it was a cautionary tale. It was like, that was too easy. Well, and I mean, you know, like it or not, I mean, the current president of Ukraine is a yeah. TV comedian. I mean, that could have been you as well. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> yes, I can run in Ukraine. Over here. I mean, he's actually turned out to be yeah, obviously a great heroic figure, but you know, when he was before the invasion, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting, Zelensky was not that well liked because he wasn't sure. doing that great a job. Yeah. He was, he really sort of like Reagan, he didn't know anything about running a government. Sure. What he does know is how to play a role as a charismatic leader because yeah. he's a great, a great performer. And he's, he's in a way it's, He's kind of the perfect guy right now. He absolutely is. And in fact, one of the boxers, I'm going to say the name wrong, Klitschenko or whatever, is is a big mayor there now, too. And he's taking the same lessons, you know. He's very charismatic. You know, he had a career and everything. That's all people really care about, you know. Yeah, I mean, look, post-TV, it's going to be, it's really important to have leaders who are good on TV, but it's John F. Kennedy. Really? I mean, JFK started it. really is your inciting incident for this. Really? Well, there's a, a great book, which I refer to, um, in my book, cause it kind of all, all books that study anti-intellectual mm-hmm. life in America stands, we stand on the shoulders of this historian named Richard Hostetter. Mm-hmm. And in 1961, he wrote a book actually called anti-intellectualism in American life. And he, at the time, it was interesting because he thought the televised debates were a really great thing. And the reason why he did, and this shows the kind of lack of how he wasn't really prophetic. He was just sort of seizing the moment, but he looked at the Kennedy Nixon debate and he said, well, Kennedy is very well informed, but he's got all this stage presence and on-screen command. And that is like, he's the perfect combination of intellectual, but also, um, a lot of stage presence and charisma. What he didn't anticipate was how political advisors would perversely reverse engineer it. And it wasn't important to have somebody who was smart or knowledgeable. Like one thing about Kennedy, great hair. And that is also important in politics. If you look at Rob Blagojevich, you know, John Edwards, Bill Clinton, I mean, hair is important. And sure. there's another really good Reagan had good hair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he took yeah. a lot of care of it too. He's always yeah. he used, um, he used brill cream. That's why <laughs> yeah, that's I, did, that's, I really drilled down. I was doing yeah. Um, yeah, he always had that, like his hair looked absolutely yeah. immobile. Like you could not get a, a strand out of place. He took, a, he was very good at all because of his career in Hollywood. He was good. He was yeah, the right image, the right man yeah. for the moment, the right yeah. man for the moment the wrong man for the country and we're still suffering the consequences. And back to uh, Kennedy just for a second is that pe- they say people that watch the debates on TV thought Kennedy won and people that listen to it on the radio thought Nixon won. A hundred percent correct. Absolutely. Wow. And yeah. there's another guy who wrote a really good book in the eighties during the Reagan era named Neil Postman. And name of his mm-hmm. book is amusing ourselves to death. It's kind mm-hmm. of like your run for student council president. Yeah. You know, sure. it's like, we are laughing and laughing and it is with Donald Trump. You know, he was like only Rosie O'Donnell, you know, he had all these like punchlines and we were, you know, I remember that first debate that like that was on Fox and, you know, Megan Kelly yeah. hosted. It's like, wow, he's got, he's really got some good singers here. He's doing really well. Um, That's when I predicted he would win actually. Yeah. I mean, there was no turning back after that, but mm-hmm. the fact is, um, in, unless we're going to have increasingly ignorant politicians who get on TV and, tell people to drink bleach to cure their coronavirus and do stuff like that. 
we're going to have to find what I think is the answer without being yeah. too, um, too prescriptive about it. But I think a guy who's really good on TV and knows stuff, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's like the Democrats for a long time were nominating guys like Mike Dukakis and George McGovern mm -hmm. who yeah. knew a lot, but were very professorial and did not connect. Yeah. And Barack Obama had both. Barack Obama yeah. was a law professor, but he knew not to lean on that too heavily because that scares people. Absolutely. Egghead Obama did not have as much of a chance as hope and change Obama. Exactly. Yeah. He really changed his act. I yeah. mean, it was like, I, I quote in the book, you know, when he first announced, and I was an early adopter of Obama in 2007, mm -hmm. my wife and I were like right there with him, but mm -hmm. we went to see him in New York, give at near at, I think at the hotel that's on top of Grand Central. And Michelle introduced him and Obama was good with the crowd. Michelle, however, was phenomenal. Michelle just had so much more charisma. Yeah. She had so much more emotion and connected with the crowd. And then it's like, and now my husband, Barack Obama. And it was like, oh, and he's pretty good too. <laughs> you know, Michelle, why right. is Michelle running? But you see, that's again, that bias. It's like Michelle is actually, and I maintain this, is, is better on TV than Barack Obama. With with the exception of that first speech that he gave, because, oh, yeah. because it was so theatrical, you know, we don't have this America, we have this America. <laughs> and we don't have that America, we have this America. That's the United States of America. Like that's, Obama has never topped that. You no, know? But you're was, absolutely right. It, it was, was like this larger version of Obama that, that made... I would say it made like, especially white liberals, like have climaxed so many times in their face. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for that uh, uh, image. It's like, oh my God, it's a black version of Bobby Kennedy. What's going on? No, I mean, it was insane. I was actually mm -hmm. working for CNN at the time and I was there. It was 2004 in Boston, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that where the convention was? And, uh, uh -huh. and it was, I mean, people were in fact blown away. I mean, yeah. but he's, so to me, like he is the archetype of what what a, either party should be trying to nominate. And, and the, other, mm -hmm. you know, the the problem right now that we have with the Republicans, there, there's a straight line from JFK to Clinton to Obama in terms of substance and style. Yeah. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. oddly enough, and I discovered this when I was doing my research, Clinton, you know, they always had that video of Clinton shaking hands with JFK when he was on the school trip. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like, I like women too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking at that girl too, Mr. President. Yeah, yeah she's cute, huh? Ask not what I can do for her. <laughs> yeah, totally. But you know, interestingly, although he made that connection with JFK and they always showed yeah. that same, it was like the Zabruder film. They showed it over and over and over again. <laughs> yes, but yes. The person he really was emulating when he was running was Reagan because he actually uh, he actually hired Reagan's people. He hired David Gergen, who was Reagan's mm -hmm. spokesman to be his spokesman. Sure. And then the other thing he did was when he had to give a big speech, like at the 50th anniversary of the landing in Normandy, he would send somebody to the Reagan library in California to check out a VHS tape of Reagan giving his speech at the 40th. Wow. And it's like, he, every big event he did, he would see what Reagan did first. And I mean, the Reagan library became, it was like, it was like blockbuster video for him, basically yeah. he just kept on going back. And Obama, same thing. Obama gave this interview with the Las Vegas newspaper. And he said, I really think the most transformational president has been Ronald Reagan. I remember when he said that. It's yeah. a little bit disheartening, but it shows how on the democratic side, like the power of 
stagecraft and TV yeah. savvy that has taken us. So you've got these two incredibly smart guys, incredibly well-informed guys, and they're trying to emulate one of the dumbest presidents in the history of the United States. <laughs> okay. So here, here's my question. Uh, but, and I want to get into the structure of your book, which is interesting too, but well, let's talk about that first. Cause okay. you divide your book into like uh, ridicule, acceptance, and celebration. Please explain that for us. And the book covers a 50 year period. It starts okay. really at 1966 with the election of Ronald Reagan as governor of California. And then it kind of culminates okay. with the advent of Trump and then sort of the children of Trump, the inheritors mm-hmm. of Trump, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. and all that. The spun. Yes. Yeah, the spun, the evil spun. <laughs> so I, I did, I divide, I call this the age of ignorance and I divided mm-hmm. it into three stages. The three stages are, as you said, ridicule, acceptance, and celebration. Now, ridicule is like the Reagan era, which is a time when we still believed it was important for politicians to know things. I mean, mm. it, it now seems kind of quaint in a way because now we don't. Now it's like mm. we, we have such an anti-knowledge culture, especially in the Republican Party, that you can't really fact check anybody. No one cares if you get facts wrong. But back then mm-hmm. people did care. And so Ronald Reagan was kind of the first avatar of that because mm-hmm. he was, when he announced his, his run for governor, and people forget this because now he's like become this kind of legendary figure People were laughing at him. They were, it was scorn, ridicule. He was known as just like a has-been and not terribly good actor. And Jack Warner, who was one of the studio bosses, heard that he was running for governor. And his joke was, said, Ronnie for governor? No. Jimmy Stewart for governor. Ronnie for best friend. Unbelievable. In fact, on the show Laughing, they used to have a, a news segment. This mm-hmm. is- you know, before we can, have, and it was the news of the future, 1984, President Ronald Reagan, pause, laugh. <laughs> I should have put that in the book. That's a great And book. it was, I, I'll never forget, that. I, I saw, at the time I didn't, it didn't register, but I saw it later in a rerun or something, I went, oh my God, they predicted President Reagan. Yeah. And it got a huge laugh when they said President Ronald Reagan. Right, yeah. because of the time they were doing laughing, yeah. he was already governor and still a joke. Yeah, 1968, yeah. He was still a joke. I mean, he, he did have sort of a little half-hearted bid for the presidency in 68 that didn't go very far. He tried like at the convention, he didn't really get any delegates. But yeah, so he... Ronald Reagan knew nothing. And to give you an example, so I'm not just doing Mm -hmm. name calling here. Ronald Reagan, when he was president, did not know that South America was composed of different countries. He did Mm -hmm. not know how to divide 45 by nine. And he thought that all the nuclear waste produced by a nuclear power plant in a year could be stored under a desk. And, you know, another thing we've been making fun lately about Herschel Walker when what an idiot he is because he says like trees are terrible and they pollute the earth and all this stuff. <laughs> but Ronald Reagan said that too. That Ronald Reagan said that trees cause more pollution than cars do. And he gave a speech at Claremont College in California and the students tacked a sign onto a tree and it said, chop me down before I kill again. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it, the thing is in 1976, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, try that was his biggest run for president at that time. And at that time, the Republican Party was still ridiculing Reagan. It wasn't just right. Democrats like they thought he was dangerous. And, you know, that it was still kind of an intellectual party in some ways, the Republican Party, you know, but you didn't think of them as dumb. Of course, they had stupid people, and, you know, and that stuff. But they seem to present 
smarter ideas. Like you thought of William F. Buckley when you thought of yeah. conservatives and those yeah. type of people. You know what I mean? Like there was there was a lot of intellectual vigor that went behind the discussion of conservatism. But Reagan turned the discussion of conservatism from this intellectual Buckley exercise to more of a rah-rah patriotism exercise, right? Well, and also he he dumbed it down. Like he, he dumbed it down, yeah. You know, he was coming from California and one of and by the way, I was talking all about his, you know, his race for governor. He won that race by a million votes. It was like a huge landslide. And uh-huh. one of the ways he did it was he said he really infantilized the voters. And he mm-hmm. said things like, you know, we've been told over the years that there are no simple solutions to our problems. Well, it turns out that there are. And who does? That's a very seductive yeah, message. Yeah, yeah. And he was basically saying, hey, dude, you don't have to do any homework, which, by the way, Reagan never did in college or in government. He never cracked a book. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, it, you can see a line from that to Donald Trump, because Donald Trump would always say, I know more than the generals. I know more than the scientists. He once said, I know more about Cory Booker than Cory Booker knows. I'm not still don't know exactly what that means. But he acted like, no, I don't have time for reading. I don't read stuff because I know everything already. And mm-hmm. that's a, if you don't really like to, you know, tax your mind very much, um, because these problems like healthcare they are really mm-hmm. naughty and they require a lot of thought. It's really, it's, it's very seductive to have somebody say, no, 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 no problem. So did it seem like with Reagan, the people <laughs> who were still in another era and it, and could see that, okay, maybe Reagan's not the brightest light bulb, at least it seemed like they felt he was surrounding himself with smarter people, right? Yeah. That's the feeling that I got at the time. Like they said, sure, Reagan's a cowboy. I get it. But let's surround the cowboy with scientists. And then when we're, when he's out with the posse or whatever, we can feel like they'll make some at least decent decisions. That's what it seemed like the Reagan administration was presenting to the world, right? Like even they kind of admitted that type of approach, it seemed like. Well, there's a moment in the book and I have to reiterate, by the way, that everything in the book is true. Because I mean, I know, I'm, I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm known <laughs> for, because of my day job, I'm known to yes. make things up. And I really want to clarify. Yes, you said thank you. But it's 100% true. So Absolutely. there's a moment There's a moment in the book that was reported by one of his biographers, a guy named Luke Hannon. And it's when Reagan's president, you're talking about him being surrounded by smart people. So James Baker, who's like this. I'm saying, I'm saying that's what they presented, is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Right. And right. in, in, in right. truth, there was a little bit of a mix. I mean, James mm-hmm. Baker, who was like kind of his fixer, he was his chief of staff, prepared this very lengthy briefing book. Huge mistake in Reagan in Reaganland. A huge briefing book uh, for Reagan to look at on the night before an economic summit. And the next day, James Baker came into the Oval Office and he could see that the book had not been even <laughs> open. And he said, he said, I love this moment. He said to Ronald Reagan, he said, um, so Mr. President, why didn't you, um, why didn't you take a look at the briefing book? And Reagan said, well, Jim, the sound of music was on TV last night. So that's really what was going on. And in terms Hmm. of the people around him who were really making decisions, Nancy Reagan was very influential and she was making all of his decisions based on astrology. She had an astrologist. Mm -hmm in California yeah. named Joan Quigley. And, you know, we're all, we've recently been mourning the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. And, mm-hmm. and when he had the first like big Geneva summit, which is kind of a legendary summit that the two had, she arranged like the entire schedule and the seating chart and everything according to astrology. I mean, yeah. so, crazy. Uh, so, I mean, maybe we should just be praising 
Joan Quigley, her astrologist, for ending the Cold War. Maybe that's the way give credit where credit's due. People underestimate you put dumb and crazy together. You know, uh, that's a volatile combination. It is. It who, who is. knows what can be accomplished. So so Reagan's the father, the modern father of the dumb politician. Yeah. And and Reagan's version of it, people just kind of ignored it. They kind of laughed it off. You know, if you press them on it, they'd probably admit that it was dumb. But hey, you know, he's he doesn't have enough time to study all that stuff. Maybe they would slough it off. In well, that he, way, turned you know? into, he turned it into turned into a bit. Like he never admitted he never admitted that he was dumb. But he yeah. but he had all these really he had he wrote a lot of zingers. These sort of self owns that he did, where he would yeah. where he would say things like, you know, there are a lot of problems with Congress, and they have given me many a sleepless afternoon. You know, because he was, oh, you know, yeah. he was because exactly. he's known for napping, and, and he said, "When when I leave the White House in the in the cabinet room, there's going to be a sign on a chair saying Ronald Reagan slept here." So like he did all those jokes of like he was right. like sleepy, napping, lazy, and America loved it. it was the '80s, and we were very right. self indulgent, and we didn't like one thing people didn't like about Jimmy Carter was that he seemed to be working too hard. He would stay up yeah. late worrying and reading stuff. And it's like- He's a micromanager yeah, too. Yeah, and you don't like a president yeah. who's working yeah. harder than you are because it makes you feel lazy. If you've got a president who's lazy, it makes you feel better about yourself. Okay, so let's go back to the macro here because I, I want to take you macro to micro on this. Okay. Andy's such a smart guy. He went to Harvard, guys. He's president of the Lampoon. He knows everything. That I, I know everything, right? <laughs> yes. So to me, and you touch about this a little bit in your book, there's something in the American fabric that is an anti-electualism thing that's in there, that's been in there for a long time, right? Hundreds of, hundreds of years. And that's what's being tapped into. So you say hundreds of years. So where does where does that come from? Because the founding fathers are considered thinkers. They are. That's the age of enlightenment, right? 18th century. Exactly. So where does this movement spring out of? Is it when Tocqueville came over and said, actually, these people are kind of dumb. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I got to tell you, like, by the time Tocqueville came around, it was already it was already a story because this is why, like, that hostage. His observation kind of defined Americans in some ways. Well, we should get back to him because he Mm -hmm. he made a really good point, which I think applies to Trump. But okay, our, our society for better or worse, was founded by the Puritans, okay? Absolutely. And the yes. Puritans were not dumb. The Puritans were very intellectual because they were incredibly literate. At a time when very few women read, mm-hmm. like a huge percentage of the Puritans were literate, of Puritan mm-hmm. women. And the reason was because there was this one book that they all had to read again and again and again, um, uh, called the Bible. And they would like, they would be like plowing the fields and a guy plowing the fields would be plowing it while he's reading the Bible with one hand. So Mm -hmm. they were like incredible bookworms. It was, they had kind of a limited library of books, but they did, you know, read, you know, they were not party people. They were, they were not party. Yes. They, they would squeeze the party out of any situation. Oh yeah. Shit. Here are the Puritans. Oh fuck. (laughs) These people. But they, I mean, you think about it like the King James, um, Bibles, Mm-hmm. relatively new at that time. It was kind of a mm-hmm. hot, you know, commodity. Mm-hmm. And they were, mm-hmm. they were, so they were, and the clergy, like when they would give lectures, I mean, sermons, you can tell I don't go to church very much. When they would give mm-hmm. sermons, it would be with all this reference to the Bible in a very literary way, because that's the kind of people they were. So mm-hmm. far, America was off to a great start, if you like <laughs> that sound of thing. Now, and they, all, they also hated Christmas. 
because it was too much pageantry and celebration. It was anti-Christ in their minds. Yeah, so you might wonder, when did things go so wrong for us, the Puritans? Well, it happened in the early 18th century when these Dutch revivalists came in and they were evangelicals and they were theatrical. So so, I know so much sense. I know they were like, that's fucking amazing. They were like those people you see, you know, in the mega churches, they would like writhe and speak in tongues and roll around on the ground and frog with the mouth. All the performative Christianity. It was like Trump versus Hillary or, you know, they just, (laughs) They just blew the Puritans out of the water. They didn't have a chance. Like, they didn't have a it's chance. Like, I like this show where they're doing all this. Absolutely. Crazy Get me a ticket. Sign me up in the front row. That was the beginning of the end. And then, you know, by the time de Tocqueville got here, there was another strain of anti-intellectualism, which was everybody's just trying to make money all the time. And if sure. you're just trying to make yeah. money, you're not like reading the Bible. You're not reading anything. Yeah. No, if you're not a robber baron in the 19th century, you're not doing your job. Yeah. And that's no. like, I mean, mm-hmm. that is really like Donald Trump because Donald Trump, his whole thing is like, I'm really successful. I've like made millions of dollars in it and I don't have time to read. Like I, like he just, when, when uh, Jane Mayer at the New Yorker interviewed Tony Schwartz, who actually wrote the art of the deal, Tony Schwartz said yes. the whole time he was with Donald Trump, he really came to the conclusion that, he had never picked up a book in his adult life. Um, So, so that's really, yeah. So we have, it's very baked in. So we're really a book like mine, which is kind of like calling it out and a call to action. I know I'm swimming against the current. I know that this Mm -hmm. is, that this is against us. It's not true in other, in other countries. If you think of like countries where they'll elect like a poet, you know, should be the the president. You know, we're not going to be electing, you know, a poet anytime soon. But like there are other countries that do value, um, you know, they would say like that guy is like an economics professor. He would be a great person to straighten out our economy or, you know, but here we like famous people. And mm-hmm. before TV, that was like generals. So we would elect mm. like General Grant, who was a great general, but a terrible president. And, you know, we've always gravitated towards the most famous person. That's sort of like when, Trump emerged, everyone said, oh, I hope that America is now not going to become a culture of celebrity. It's like, wait a minute. Right. Too late. Too late. Yes. It's yeah. always like, look at Larry Wilmore and like campaign in, in middle yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, that was my campaign was I like Ike. I didn't even change the name. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny. Eisenhower's campaign was I like Ike, not kill poverty or let's no. let's let's beat the Russians. It's you like me. That's you like enough. Me. You like me. Yeah. And the funny thing is so funny you bring that up because the guy the Democrats threw up against him both times. <laughs> yes, yes, was such yes. a, I mean, to me, yes. like a character. If you were writing a movie uh, about an unsuccessful presidential candidate, it yeah. would be the Adlai Stevenson story because it's the Peter Sellers character in uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yes. Uh, he's like he's doing Adlai Stevenson. I yeah. mean, the amazing thing about about Adlai Stevenson is this is a case like I I did the research on him. He actually is considered, um, people talk about him. It's like, oh, this great intellectual. And he was, that's the kind of president we should have. Adlai Stevenson actually was not even an intellectual. He flunked out of law school. He didn't read. That's great. What he had was a bench of really great speechwriters. So he had like John Percy and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And And he had that egghead look too. That was great. Yes. And the term egghead was named after him, actually. I mean, he was, and, and he owned it. Um, yeah. But it was really, it was a case of like the reverse of like the Reagan thing. Here was a guy 
who didn't know very much. And they tried to make That's him seem as alienating as possible. Wow. Like, let's have him use words like, <laughs> like <laughs> deprecation. What the yeah. fuck does that mean? He was like yeah. always doing like, you know, the vocab words and, yeah. and just, there was a moment, this is like a great moment that shows you why Adelaide Stevens could never win. Wow. He gave some speech and, and it went, it was killed with the libs, you know, and this, and this woman stood up afterwards and said, Mr. Stevenson, if you keep making speeches like that, you're going to have the vote of every thinking person in America. <laughs> and his comeback was, well, madam, I need a majority. <laughs> so wow. he's condescending, condescending, uh, pretentious and not really, there wasn't actually that much substance behind him, but that was sort of the problem the Democrats had for a few decades there, really before Clinton. It's interesting how the different parties, you know, like certain types, like Democrats can't get enough of eggheads. No. They really do like that, but they learn that they can't win with them. So they have to have charismatic eggheads. Yeah. And that's, it's a very narrow target. But I mean, if you look yeah. at, I mean, if you look at the field in the most recent presidential candidate, you had a lot of, you know, no one's a bigger egghead than Liz Warren. I mean, Liz Warren, was yeah. a great, you know, I love Liz Warren. I was, I was really in the tank for Liz, but Liz yeah. always said like, she would talk about the problems we had in the country. And she would say, I've got a plan for that. That was her big thing. But you know, she seemed more like a, I don't She didn't come across as an egghead to me. Mm-hmm. She seemed like a kind of a overworked uh, <laughs> teacher. She seemed like an overworked teacher Correct. to me who had all her school plans already figured out, but you know what? She's got to go pick this up and she's got to do this and I'll come back and do that. But there's a PTA meeting here and yes, and I'm running this, but she had, she was like overworked. It seemed to me, yeah. but she was smart, but she wasn't an egghead. I don't know if we've had, if we had an egghead in the last one on the democratic side, which I think it kind of left it open. I think Buttigieg tried. Buttigieg. Yeah. He's yeah. probably the uh, closest. You're right. Yeah. yeah. He was there. Which is, and he was, look, that's a mayor who came from out of nowhere and look how far he went. Yeah. So that's what I mean. We like the eggheads. We love them. I mean, I did a whole thing on like, you know, the, you know, the, in the, if you trace like the blood, I've talked about the bloodline of Reagan, but if you trace the bloodline of Adlai Stevenson, yeah, you get people like George McGovern, Hubert Humphrey, Gene McCarthy. These are all guys who were either college professors or who wanted to be college professors and they trade into politics. And You know, on the other side, you had, you know, Richard Nixon, who, although he was well informed, he dumbed down his message to kind of this really Mm -hmm. racist law and order, Mm -hmm. um, peace with honor. You know, he he broke his things down to like three words. And it's taken the Democrats really until like Clinton and Obama to figure out that you can have the smart guy, but you've got to really make the message pretty understandable. That's what's interesting about this, because it's not just, you know, your book. Yes, it's about these dumb people, but the story's more complex than that. You yes. know? It yeah. really is, you know. That's what's cool about history. And you also find, yeah. like, one of the hopeful things, I think, about history is that it doesn't move in a straight line. Like, I think we're really in a dark age yeah. right now. But I yeah, actually, yeah. I think there are glimmers of hope, even as I talk about all these dopes. Yeah. Wasn't it great a couple of weeks ago when Sarah Palin lost in Alaska. Wasn't that oh, a yeah. great moment? Yeah, she's so past her expiration date. You know, yeah. I think uh, even the people who would vote for her go, no, 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 bitch, we're not having any of that. We're, we're done with it. <laughs> and I think it's sort of like, hmm. it's encouraging to me that like. Hopefully Trump is too. But you I know, know, in Alaska, like they're, I think a lot of people said, we actually can't 
countenance the idea of having a national joke as our congresswoman. I really do think that was a part of it. Well, what's interesting, see, but because politics like showbiz is a moving organism, right. you know, it doesn't stand still. So you are a prisoner to the zeitgeist. You can't just have good ideas. That's what Nixon understood. You know, he had like Nixon didn't campaign in 1960 the way he campaigned in 68. That's right. He was he he was using Eisenhower to campaign in terms of everybody knows who I am. I'm just going to state my policies and I'm just going to be straightforward because I'm smarter than this guy. Who's this Kennedy? He's got a tan. That's that's <laughs> the biggest thing he has. I mean, honestly, but by 68, he's like, fuck this law and order, you know, Vietnam, like he, like he went hard on like, on things, you know, to get elected. That was under the tutelage of Roger Ailes. Sarah Palin to me was, she was a zeitgeist candidate. She came out at the right time. And I was at that convention in 20, when was it? 2008. In 2008. Okay. So, um, we didn't know what was going to happen with Obama and all that. And the Obama Hillary thing is fascinating too, in terms of what you're presenting. That's a whole fascinating thing also. Um, but that Democrats are more interested in authenticity and identity more than anything else. And we're, I think the Republicans are more interested in values and, you know, are who's the purest in values, you know, drill, baby drill, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. you know, <laughs> like, like, and so, McCain is mushy on values, right. you know, but, you know, it was his turn. And at that point, the Republican Party was about whose turn it was. Right. 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 Um, who's next? That was the Republican Party at that time. But uh, they were changing. You know, they were like, we're not winning with this. Who's next bullshit? You know, it's like because Bush wasn't really next. He kind of like popped in there. He kind of got right. lucky. You know, he kind of jumped over McCain. So McCain's like. Motherfucker, I was supposed to be next last time, so it's my turn. <laughs> this is Larry Wilmer's short, uh, giving you the shorthand of, of history. But my point is that it wasn't his zeitgeist time. His zeitgeist time was 2000. Right. That was his zeitgeist Absolutely time. Absolutely right. So his, so at the time he ran in 2008, he was done. Right. And, but it was Palin's time actually to be accepted in the zeitgeist. And she crushed at that convention. I was like, Oh my, I was like, Oh my God. And this is before we knew how dumb she was too. Yeah. It was like, this is a, this is a political star. Nobody gives a fuck about McCain. Nobody gave a fuck about McCain in that, in that arena. And my wife and I, we watched that. We were terrified. We were like, this yeah. is really working. Like she's really, yeah. You know, that whole like lipstick on a pig and, soccer mom thing and the demographics about soccer mom she tapped into at the right moment too you know i mean there's a funny moment in the book because i watched this is a great piece of tape that's available on youtube but i watched a um focus group on fox that was done after the debate between palin and joe biden the vp debate and in that debate she said one of the most outrageous things and people really don't pay it that much attention to it, but I think it's still kind of staggering, which is about a minute into the debate, she said, I may not answer all the questions you want me to answer, but I'm going to speak directly to Joe Sixpack and all the hockey moms across America. She basically said, I don't know the answers to any of these questions. It's like Dan Quayle, when he was in the same position, he struggled to answer questions and that's what bucked him up. kind of frozen, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and she actually completely mm-hmm. reinvented the debate yeah. but, and Trump did it too. Where he, he took it to the next level. Yeah. She basically said, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say anything. And every time they asked her any question, it, it didn't matter what it was about. She always brought it back to drill, drilling for oil in Alaska because that's mm-hmm. the only thing that she could drill, baby drill. <laughs> drill, baby drill. And there's a funny moment where Biden uh, says to her, 
really the answer to all, all of our problems isn't drill, drill, drill. And then she jumps in and says, actually, the chant is drill, baby, drill. <laughs> she's, she's correcting him. It was, gotcha. Fact check. Uh, it was uh, hilarious. She was so haughty about it. No, it's drill, baby, drill. But she, uh, um, after this, they did a focus group. And it was all these people who were supposedly undecided voters. And they said, how many of you think that Sarah Palin won? And they all like raised their hands. Now, this is Fox, of course. But yeah. what was really interesting about the answers and why they liked Sarah Palin was that they all said things like, she's Main Street America. She's just like yeah. us. She's just like anybody. And I was like, you know what? I do not want a president who's no. just like me. I want a I, president who's yeah. way smarter than me because I would really fuck this whole thing up. And the notion that we've gone to a place where we want a president whose intellect and knowledge is so unthreatening that yeah. we will we'll feel bad about ourselves because he or she knows more than me. That's really a yeah. bad place to be. You want... It's like a surgeon. You want the surgeon to know more about cutting yourself open than you do. Thousand percent. Yeah. It seems like Republicans believe in American exceptionalism, except when it comes to the presidency. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that that could be more graded on a curve, really. And then that's just American exceptions. That's just an exception. (laughs) (laughs) They thought the alism. We don't need the alism. Yeah, that's where we We get in trouble. We just need the exception, you know. So let's talk about Trump because Trump has taken this to a whole different level. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with Bush, it's kind of what you call what was Bush acceptance? Is that what you okay? So acceptance phase, like if ridicule is, I'm dumb, but you know, and it's also care about. I don't need to know things. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody knows things. Knowing is dangerous. Hey, everybody (laughs) wants to know. Osama knows things. You know. So Trump takes this to he takes it from the id and jumps over ego directly to the superego, <laughs> I think, with Trump, like just goes right past the ego. And he does something. I believe this is my theory about Trump, that it's even beyond stupidity. Like he's become he became now the, the reason why I brought up Zeitgeist, because I want to bring back her too. sure. In 2016, I believe he became like a superhero for the right, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who could come to rescue them from this left that was destroying America, as opposed to he represented something like the way Reagan did, you know, like nostalgia or the West or or Bush that you want to drink a beer with him. Trump was different. He was coming to the rescue, saving them from wicked, from crooked Hillary and all these things. And his boasting that people who opposed him like me thought was horrible and all these things only made him more powerful in their minds. Like lying only made him more acceptable to him. And the things he didn't know only made them embrace him more and protect him, which is amazing. I mean, I remember a moment, Larry, I'm so vivid. I was like driving through the Hudson Valley and um, I got a phone call from my son. So that would be like 2016. So my son was, I guess he was in college. He was like 21. Yeah. And he said, the election's over. And I said, what do you mean the election's over? And he said, <laughs> well, this, this tape has come out that shows Trump saying that he grabs women by the pussy and all this stuff. It's over. He's done. Now, we so woefully misunderstood that moment. Oh, liberals. Oh, yeah, oh, liberals. And the we're things like, you think people care about. Well, we're like those fucking Puritans back in the 1700s. Like we, we are. It's so quaint. And yeah. what, what people didn't realize was that people were voting for Trump 
not in spite of the fact that he was an asshole. It was because he was an asshole and he was an, that's what I'm saying. He was an, I'm and I'm agreeing. He's an aspirational figure. They all felt like, you know, if I were a millionaire, that's what I would do. I would grab women by the pussy. I would, I would cheat on my taxes. I would all bets are off all this stuff. And so he became this, you know, it's like, there's a really good book on professional wrestling and, and, and the spectacle of professional wrestling by this journalist named Chris Hedges. And he talks about how, and Trump, of course, is from that world. I mean, Trump was a big Vince McMahon WrestleMania participant. I mean, he was really a part of that world. And Hedges makes this point that the reason why fans of professional wrestling embrace professional wrestling, it isn't because they really think the fights are real. They know that the fights are not real, but they're electing to be fooled. They want to be fooled they, because the fantasy is powerful and the fantasy is something that you dig. And so with Trump, like the fantasy of Trump and the fan, fantasy of this guy who's sort of like, you know, Tony Stark and Iron Man, you know, who just sort of rides around a helicopter and fuck mm-hmm. any woman he wants and all this stuff. That was to a certain number of people just very, very seductive. And the fact that they felt the other Republicans were allowing the the Democrats and the left to just run all over them culturally and you know, not say anything about it and that their culture was being left behind. And Trump was coming up and saying, fuck Rosie O'Donnell, you know, fuck these people, you know, and wasn't and wasn't afraid to say the things that they actually wanted to say, but would get punished for it because he never got punished for anything. And he also he was mining a very deep vein of misogyny because when you were talking about Hillary and one of Hillary's big problems, I mean, she has some limitations as a, as a politician. She's not charismatic uh, to a great extent. And she, right. she does get into that egghead problem that the Democrats have that, yeah. her, that her husband. Exactly. She's classic conquered. Right. Um, but it's also just, you know, straight out, you know, it's, we have not elected a woman when something like 63 other countries have done so on, on every continent. And I mean, mm. you'll get to like, they were all women running Finland and they're also seeming, they seem to seeming to have a really good time doing it based on the, <laughs> yeah, party of the weekend, some good parties. But I mean, literally every continent, you know, has elected women and, and we're, why is it that we haven't, I don't think it's a fluke. I think it's that we're much more misogynistic culturally than other countries are. That's sad, sadly true. Um, I think that's part of it. I, I do have a slight, of difference opinion on that, not a complete, I think that's part of it, but I think, what was going on at that point is more left-right divide mm-hmm. and that Hillary was undermined with that whole Benghazi thing and everything. Cause they knew how formidable of a candidate she was. Right. And, and I, and I think people like Anthony Weiner and all kinds of scandalous things to me hurt Hillary more than the sexism thing. I feel, you know, cause the race was pretty close. She, she should have beaten Donald Trump, honestly. Oh, yeah. And actually in a handful of States in a handful of States had, a few thousand votes gone in a different way. She would have won. But, you know, that's the other thing. It was a, it was a messy campaign, Andy. Yeah. It honestly was. Because she honestly, she should have beaten him. You I know? mean, the one the one thing I would say, and I agree with everything you just said, but a lot of Democratic voters who voted for Obama just stayed at home for Hillary. They just didn't. Yeah. And that would have made the difference right there. Yeah, but that's part of the candidates problem, yeah. you know, bringing yeah. them out, you know. Yeah, no totally. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? 
Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. So let's talk about where we are. I appreciate you taking the time here because your book starts conversations too, as well as provides all this uh, great stuff. And some of it I had to skip back because I'm like, I cannot relive some of this book stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like I could, the quail stuff was bad enough because I couldn't believe how stupid quail was. Oh, oh, my God. Reading some of that, oh, it's unbelievable. Hey, I think quail was the stupidest, by the way, of all of them. Yes. You know? Cause yeah. Because at least Bush, like... You can kind of see yourself maybe hanging out with Bush. You know, I mean, the Obamas, they're his best buddy. But Quail, there's absolutely, there's nothing you can say. Like Bush, you could talk about baseball, at least, you know, yeah. all the Rangers, whatever, you know, but Jesus Christ. Okay, so <laughs> Andy, you're smart on all this stuff. Let's talk about where we are, because I'll hit a couple of things here, but I want to get your take on it. Okay. I believe that Joe Biden is an anomaly. Mm-hmm. I, I believe he's an anomaly. We have we've had pres. I, I I felt Jimmy Carter was an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had anomaly presidents. You know, the first Bush in some ways, but you know he was vice president, so not really. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason why he didn't stick around a while because he didn't really he wasn't supposed to be there in my right. mind. You know, right. he wasn't a good. Play. He didn't win many elections. Period. In his whole career, he was mainly appointed to things. I feel he got dumber the longer he was with <laughs> Reagan. He was the smartest when he was running against Reagan, the economics and all that stuff. By the end of his like thousand points of light, you know, little kid, he's like, "What are you? Who's this guy?" You know, happened <laughs> <laughs> to the CIA director killer from you know three days of the Condor? What happened to that guy? You know? <laughs> But uh, so I believe um, Joe Biden's an anomaly. I, my opinion of him is that it's a presidency in search of a president. That's that's my view of Biden, mm-hmm. meaning that the Democrats are in power right now. I feel more than Biden is. You mm-hmm. know, he's he's the holder of that seat because they had to get rid of Trump. Right. So we're kind of in a never, never land in terms of leadership, I feel like. And what I mean by that is we're what the party's reaching for, where it's going to go. Cause he's not representing the zeitgeist to me right now. He's, he, he's, he got lucky with the timing of things. He's a time machine president, right? Yeah. Okay. Trump, on the other hand, he, there's a zeitgeist problem with Trump, mm-hmm. you know, because these, you know, enough time goes past the stupid stuff gets remembered too. And some of the, you know, he's burned a lot of people in his side and people have long memories and that stuff. And then you have people like DeSantis to me who are more zeitgeisty mm-hmm. and they're the, they're the smarter version of Trump, <laughs> you right. know, the, the more responsible. I feel Trump's time may be gone. And the Republicans I think are in a better position to have replicants of Trump and the thing that he did in a better package than the Democrats have. What are we trying to redo Obama? I mean, what are like, what's, what's in the air there? You know, and what's, right. do we want somebody smart? You know, are we, Where are like, we yeah, exactly. Do we, are we looking for the egghead again? Or are we looking for Please the, no. yeah. <laughs> Please. I proved what do we, what do we need, Andy? What do we, what do we need in there? Cause we, because we can't, I think that I think Trump is done personally. I, agree. I could be wrong about I that. I agree. Well, here's yeah. here's what I think the problem with Trump is, and I and you, I go, went back to like the early days of Trump, like when he was just kind of a faux candidate in the '80s when he was talking about running, and he's been talking right, about right. running for years and years. Trump has always been a candidate of grievance, and 
Mm-hmm. And I think it has worked well for him because Trump personally is a deeply unhappy, aggrieved person. Yeah. He's very miserable. And he feels like mm-hmm. he's been treated unfairly, I think, initially by mm-hmm. his family and his his, his parents. He, yeah. He mid- operates like somebody stole something. From exactly. Him. Which is yeah. a very funny thing for a mm-hmm. rich kid who's had everything yes. done for him. But he's exactly. the thing is, it's not a, it's not an act. He's genuinely aggrieved. Mm-hmm. But what was great about 2016 was he was expressing white grievance. It mm-hmm. was the Mexicans are coming. Right. They're, they're, you know, rapists and mm-hmm. some of them very fine people, but it was like, <laughs> but the others was, are going to rape your little white girl. Yeah. Right. But it was, <laughs> he was channeling his grievance and making it something that other people could tap into. Now, mm-hmm. if you look at what he's doing now, his grievance is all about how he's been mistreated. That's all exactly. About and that's people, why it's different. That's exactly right. It's sort of like that kid in, in high school is pissed off that, you know, he's sad that his girlfriend dumped him. And for the yeah. first week or so, like you're trying to cheer him up. And then by week three, <laughs> it's like, could you please stop talking about Cheryl? We've heard, you, we've heard enough. Oh, you know, here's a, here's a crazy one. Lenny Bruce first got famous because he was bucking the system. You know, he's saying these words and doing provocative things, but then his act became about him talking about his trials. Yeah. <laughs> and people were like, we don't want to hear about your shit, man. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's also yeah. a problem with fame. I mean, it's a problem yeah. with fame and that you, you lose touch with the things that got you there. And it's yes. then it becomes things about like your divorces and your taxes yes. and your houses and yes. no one cares. So those are not and right. Trump, so Trump, who is very good at making his very authentic grievance, something that yes. other people could tap into has I lost agree. the plot. He's just lost. Oh, that's interesting. He's lost the right receiver of that grievance or the yeah. avatar of it is my feeling about DeSantis. And there's so much talk about him now. Is DeSantis is a great, avatar of what I call the third stage of ignorance celebration, because in the celebration phase, everything's been flipped on its head. And now smart, educated politicians are pretending to be dumb. And that's DeSantis. DeSantis. Okay. I will give you another term then. Okay. So we're done celebration coronation. (laughs) (laughs) This is the time when they place the crown on the head of of this person. Yes. Where the dunce cap should be. The coronation of ignorance. Yeah. I mean, I mean, DeSantis is a Harvard and Yale graduate. Yes. Law school. Um, He, and yet he was banned from YouTube for spreading coronavirus misinformation. So He's and now he's like sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard, which is totally ripping off Greg, Greg Abbott. Right. In Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Greg actually is suing his ass because that was his bit, you know, and, his now, move, yeah. and now he's doing it. So he's doing all this <laughs> just stupid shit to, mm-hmm. you know, that's so pandering and obvious and maybe right. it's going to work up to a point. The problem is, have you ever heard Ron DeSantis speak? Mm, just in bits and pieces, not at length. Yeah. My point exactly, which mm-hmm. is that I think he could turn out to be the Scott Walker of 2024, which is that on paper, yeah, interesting. it all looks, and I'm not saying I'm a bad predictor of stuff. So, so just take it with a grain of salt, but on paper, it should be DeSantis because he's smart. He's hugely well-funded and he's, he's figured out the Trump thing, but he's found a way to reboot it in a more appealing way. But no one's yeah. heard his voice, which is kind of this high squeaky voice. And no one's like actually seen because I remember with Scott Walker, everybody was saying, oh, my God, he's like got the Brothers behind him. He's he's the guy. 
and he was like a white guy who sort of looked like a clip art character, you know. And, and, and then I saw the first, I remember I saw the first debate with Scott Walker, and I think I wrote a New Yorker piece about it everywhere. It's like Scott Walker emerges as front runner for assistant manager job at Enterprise Rent-A-Car because it was like he was right. the most kind of toolish middle, like, not middle management, like the guy who like you wouldn't mm. trust to manage the enterprise rent a car. You'd, you'd make him assistant manager. Maybe he right. runs it on the, on the night shift or something. But he was he was like the DeSantis of that race. Like he was the guy who was so, you know, coronated, you know, when exposed to I mean, that's in a way the good thing about television, which is that it does kind of test whether or not these guys are going to be able to communicate and yeah. cut through. And um, it's wildly too influential, but it's kind of good. It's kind of a winnowing, <laughs> sort of a winnowing. It does. And I'll make this observation. I've said this before. Since Kennedy, you could go all the way back to Kennedy. And this is going to sound superficial, but it's true. The candidate with the most charisma has always won. And I've gone through it and I've tried to find a case where that wasn't the case. And you're right. It really is like George Bush had more than Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Al Gore was very wooden up there. Yeah. Way more. And <laughs> it's also, crazy. And also, like, you know, Al Gore, first of all, Al Gore, for all this egghead. Another Adlai Stevenson. Another Adlai Stevenson. But like Adlai Stevenson, he wasn't good in school either. He I His know. grades were as bad as Bush's. Um, yeah. They both were like C students. But for some reason, even though Gore had lived for eight years. And he was the son of a politician, too. He yes. had that entitled uh, That's upbringing right. that Bush That's had, right. too. Very yeah. similar guys. But even though he had lived, he'd worked under Clinton for eight years and saw the magic of Clinton and what Clinton could do. Gore learned nothing Mm-mm. from Clinton. He rejected him. He was, ex- and he was so off-putting. Like he would just reel off the names of long books he'd read. And it's like, <laughs> no, 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 don't do that. Uh, so who was the dumbest in your opinion of all these Of people? all the people I covered? Mm-hmm. Well, we're leaving out a lot of recent people like Ron Johnson. I mean, they're in Ron is in the book too. And <laughs> Ron, I, I did a show last night um, uh-huh. in New York with Anna Quinlan, who, who was my oh, yeah. interlocutor. And Anna said to me before we went out, she said, she said, you say the meanest thing about Ron Johnson in this book. And, and what, I said, what was that? I said, you describe him as a failed class ring salesman. <laughs> that, that wasn't That's fantastic. And it's actually. In fact, true. I he love that. He was a failed class ring salesman wow. who married a rich woman whose dad owned a plastics company. And so Ron became president wow. of a plastics company and then a senator. But he, Ron Johnson, when, you know, the coronavirus thing first started, he got out there in a town hall in Wisconsin and said that Listerine if you just gargled with Listerine, that would kill COVID. And Listerine, the poor manufacturer of Listerine actually had to come out with a statement saying, no, actually, all it does is make your mouth minty fresh. It will not do anything about COVID. He is like really profoundly dumb. I mean, there are a whole crew of guys, Tom, mm-hmm. you know, Tuberville, Tommy Tubbs, yeah, uh, Tuberville, um, this guy, they just nominated in New Hampshire, who's going to run for Senate in New Hampshire, Balduck. I don't know if you've been... Hearing any mm-hmm. stuff. I don't know. I'm all saying stuff that's absolutely crazy. There's a woman who she just got elected. I think this, you know, in one of the recent congressional elections named um, Mary Miller from Illinois. Mm-hmm. She gave a speech on the Capitol the day before January 6th. And it started with this phrase said, 
Hitler was right about one thing. Uh. And like, you cannot start any sentence uh-uh. like that and uh-uh. hope to stick the landing. You're just uh-uh. not gonna. But so now there's like, it's when you ask who's the dumbest, like, I almost feel like we should be crowdsourcing that because it's just like too hard to know. Yeah. Cause there's, there's dumb and then there's just fucked up opinions like that. Right. But like Herschel Walker to me is starting to get in the lead yeah. of like, there's just no, like the, the beginnings of his sentences has no idea what the ends are going to look like, you know, like, like the end goes, really? That's how this sentence started. You're kidding me. I had yeah. no idea. We're getting Yeah. Anywhere. You know, I think you're right. I think he's, he's a, a talent. I've kind of, I've sadly, he got, you know, he got in there before, you know, I'd written the book first. I mean, I'm gonna, true. I clearly yeah. I'm going to have to do a volume two because he's excavating new ground in terms of, of, and the reason why I bring it up is because he's, He's so embraced by the Republicans because, hey, yeah, yeah, we got a we got a brother, you know, who's, you know, go against Warnock. And of course, there's a football player and all that stuff. Oh, this is what I wanted to ask you. So if Trump had been a liberal, same guy, same grievance and all that, but his grievance were conservatives and all that stuff, would he have been president? I think he could have been. I actually it's funny. I don't see Trump as a conservative. You know, I, I actually think that well, he term, never was right. He never was. I mean, yeah. he was, and, you know, he gave a lot of money to Democrats and mm-hmm. he I mean, culturally, he was he didn't he never has acted like a conservative. He's you know, he's right. I'm sure he, you know, certainly his behavior as a human, as a as a man praised in hip hop culture, by the way. Very much so. Yeah, very much so praised in hip hop culture. And I always said because he made his own vodka, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his own vodka. I think a lot of you know, it's funny, like conservatives like this really weird term now, because when I think of like what a conservative means, well, I should probably say Republican. You no, know. but everybody says, yeah. I mean, the Republicans use the term incorrectly, I think, because they yeah. all say like. I'm not so sure that Ronald Reagan was a conservative because a conservative is supposed to be someone who believes in small government and um, reduced government spending. And Ronald Reagan is the guy who totally exploded the federal debt. I mean, he made the national debt something like three times bigger than what it was when he started because he spent so much on the military and he spent money on remember Star Wars like. Star Wars, which spent like billions of dollars on it, never worked. It's like when we when when Republicans say things like we're tired of these tax and spend liberals and we want to get back to conservative, small government conservatives. We haven't seen the guy who's cut the budget the most in the White House and cut the deficit the most was Bill Clinton. He balanced the budget that he is the most, by their terms, the most conservative president we've had. Well, the left criticizes Bill Clinton on, on, in many ways. Like, yeah. people are not without criticism for those things. I, I actually am not. I'm not a Bill Clinton fan at all, but I will. See, there I'll, you go. Yeah, yeah there you go. But I, <laughs> I, mean, he, I mean, really, if you look at his record, the one thing I think that he did right was Kosovo. And I don't even know if that was like a major, I think he was kind of doing that partially because it was just wag the dog, his wag the dog moment. That was actually very successful. Most of the things Clinton did, like whether it's the defense of marriage act or any number Mm -hmm. of these right wing things he did, I think have have aged very, very poorly. But all I'm saying is if you really want to look at a recent president who was a fiscal conservative, it was Bill Clinton more than Reagan. Well, I think Reagan at that time, the things that he spent on weren't the social things that were spent in the sixties. So that's yeah. what made him a conservative, but Democrats certainly spent a lot on defense pre 
1960, and yeah. they were known as defensive hawks, in fact. Right. You know, the Democratic that, that's, Party. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, the Republicans were more America first, isolationist type of party for a long time. You know, they. I mean, I'm sort of feeling like the labels, the labels are always kind of inexact. They're useful because it helps us to define these people. But I. But define like, them within their time in the context yeah. of those times. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. more than being. More than being a conservative, I think Trump emerged as a nationalist, as kind of a white nationalist. And, mm-hmm. and it was sort of like the politicians, you know, everyone, people get very frothy. Yeah. People get very frothy on the internet and mm-hmm. they say, oh, he's like Hitler and everything. And I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think he was like the one politician I would compare him to is Slobodan Milosevic. And the reason, oh, why, wow. the reason, a blast from the past, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I do that is because Slobodan Milosevic was actually quite a chameleon. He was, and everyone can Google who he was, but during the Balkans, he was a big name. We heard it a lot. He was a guy who's kind of a hack politician. And then he gave a couple of speeches that were all about Serbian nationalism. And mm. like when Trump's up there kind of spitballing and improving and something sticks, and it's like, oh, maybe that bit works. Maybe I should keep that for my next bit. Milosevic learned that Serbian nationalism and sort of this genocidal racism towards the other, you know, the Bosnians and 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 the very, the other people that, that were around in that area, um, that that was working for him. So he went from being kind of a fungible, malleable politician to being a nationalist. And I think mm. that's what it was with Trump. I think that he... He'd always demonized other foreign countries. Even back in the 80s, there's clips of him on like the Phil Donahue show where he's saying, Japan is a disaster. He's like saying all, <laughs> he's like saying all the things he would later say about China. Japan, Saudi Arabia, they're a disaster. We're paying them too much. They don't do anything we should. And he was like saying the same thing. Like it was just like, we're going to you know build the wall and make Mexico pay for it. He was going to say, we're going to get Japan and Saudi Arabia to pay off our national debt because we've been supporting mm-hmm. them too much with military. So he, you know, he had this shtick, but then it became this white nationalist thing. Yeah. Um, and that's really what worked just the way it worked for Milosevic, but Milosevic didn't work forever. Eventually. Yeah. And Trump also had a bit of a 19th century Tammany Hall boss in him in there as yeah, well, yeah. you know, where yeah. g- graft is the is oh. the thing to to do, you know, where, you know, his whole relationship with Kim Jong-un and all that and all those things and wanting to be adored by dictators and all that stuff. It's, some of that stuff d- defies categorization. Actually. I mean, he likes the strong man, whether it's Don King. He was very good yeah. friends with Don yeah. Whether it's Don yeah. King or Kim Jong-un, he likes yeah. the guy. He likes the strong man. Yeah. the bluster. And, and I think it's because he, not to get too armchair psychological here, but I think yeah. he feels tremendously inadequate. And so he likes the guys that kind of puff out their chests and the way he does. And have a lot of braggadocio and that, yeah. that makes him feel better about himself. Well, let me ask you this. And I appreciate you being here, Andy profiles and ignorance. You guys, how America's politicians got dumb and dumber. It's really, it's, a, as I said, it's fun and scary, funny and scary. Uh, so let me ask you this as a parting shot. Are these politicians uh, making us dumber or just reflecting how dumb we actually are? <laughs> you know, I'm so glad you asked me that because you're the first person who's asked me that question and I'm dying to answer it because oh, good, no one's asked that question. No. And you are the first. Mm-hmm. So Larry, here's the thing. When I announced that I was doing this book and it was coming mm-hmm. out, everybody, a lot of people on Facebook and Twitter said things like, 
well, of course the politicians are getting dumber because we're getting dumber. And I'm not saying that's not entirely the case, but when I started to work on the book, I had a premise, and this is what's kind of cool about researching history, because you learn how ignorant you are. And that's mm -hmm. one thing I learned, like all the things I was wrong about. And I had this theory that the reason we have dumb politicians is because our educational system is a failure. And if we were only better educated, mm. lacked better people, that turns out not to be true. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not the only one. FDR also thought this. He said, like, wow. great education will let good people. Well, it turns out that we all have a lot of confirmation bias. And so like mm -hmm. Dems, the Dems, we can believe in very stupid things because we want it to be true. Yeah, so like absolutely. after Trump um, was elected, I had very smart people who I knew college educated, some beyond that, you know, with graduate school degrees actually saying to me things like, you know, there are ways to overturn that election because mm -hmm. it's really, he can't be president. There, there's a lot of discussion underway about how it can be overturned. And some people were saying, you know, Putin, rigged the voting machines like he was hacked in. there's actually no truth to that whatsoever it's right. absolutely as bad shit as all the QAnon stuff that the other side has been spewing and right. yet smart people people that you and i would consider cool intelligent well-educated people were saying totally fucked up bad shit stuff so yeah. that blows my whole education theory out of the water because educated people are part of the problem and what i mean by that is that especially white educated people like me tend to be the least engaged in really helping change politics. We watch politics, mm -hmm. we write about it, we refresh 538.com. We do a lot of stuff like that as mm -hmm. observers, but we don't like, we don't get involved in local town meetings. We don't mm -hmm. register voters. Now I know some of your listeners are probably getting pissed off at me because they say, Hey, I've been working. And if you have, good for you. But all I'm saying is a lot of people like me have not done enough. And so, okay, are we getting dumber politicians because we're getting dumber? I actually believe that, remember how Reagan used to talk about trickle-down economics? Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't work. But I do believe that trickle-down ignorance does work, which mm -hmm. is that ignorance can often come from the top down. So in other words, we have these politicians we're social animals. We tend to be compliant. If somebody says to you, take off your shoes at the airport, we will do that. If they say mm -hmm. there are these color-coded threat levels, we will take that seriously. We listen to what authority says to us. As much as we act like we've got rugged individualism and we're, we're so, we have so much free will, we really are very compliant. So when guys who are elected to high offices say stuff that is ignorant, we tend to believe them. Not in all cases, but it gets very baked in and it becomes, whether it was true or not, it seems true to us. Mm -hmm. So I think that the ignorance that we're experiencing is partially because we have politicians that are ignorant, they're passing completely either false or you know boneheaded ideas down to us. And then we tend to believe them, all the people who believe in Trump's big lie. It's not that they're dumb, it's just that they're believing the guy who they think has a lot of good ideas. Maybe mm -hmm. looking for him because they think he has a lot of good ideas. Yeah. But to me, the way to reverse that, and again, it's not a magic bullet because it's going to be, I think it's hard and it's very incremental, is that if ignorance trickles down, I think knowledge has to rise up, which is like mm -hmm. we've got to get involved in local politics, turn off like cable news a little bit, 
turn off Twitter a little bit and actually think about, can we make our neighborhoods better? Like our, our locality better? Can we, can we volunteer for stuff? Can we go to town meetings? I know this sounds really corny and Capra-esque, except no one's doing this. Okay. Yeah. So there's proof that it works. Like canvassing can work. Um, mm-hmm. Look at Stacey Abrams in Georgia, like on January 5th, you know, if we talk about January 6th, but on January 5th in Georgia, they elected two Democratic senators, an African-American and a Jew. I mean, that's like a sci-fi movie. That's <laughs> right there. So it's uh, like, you know, that was volunteers. That was Stacey Abrams and volunteers just doing the hard stuff. And I saw, so I guess I end the book kind of with that call to action, which is it's time to do some hard stuff. Let's stop, uh, you know. And let's get out of the chorus of despair and, you know, oh, everything sucks. I mean, even though part of the book seems like it's going in that direction, ultimately, I think things like the election in Kansas and the election mm. in Ohio yeah. and the election in Alaska should tell us we're not as dumb as everybody thought we were. Eventually, there's going to be a correction. Maybe it's going to happen now. We'll see. There is hope. Andy has hope. Well, it's, I think people are, are more interested in acceptance than in enlightenment, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's easier and feels better to be part of a group of something and for confirmation bias to rule it than to have your mind changed about something or to learn something. It's really hard. It's it's just, it's just safer. It's safer to have your opinions validated than to learn something new. I think a lot of that, you know, Andy Boroughs, thanks so much, man. What a great, what a great conversation. It was so great talking to you and catching up. Thank you. Uh, we'll have to do a live event one of these days. That'd oh, be I would, I would love that. I, mean, I would just so love that. Like, like Larry, you have been like, we've intersected for like decades Yes. and this is, it was so great to actually spend this amount of time with you and, and get to get to hear your ideas, which is so great. Thank you. And let me just, since I have you here, I just want to thank you personally in front of the world for including me in your book about the funniest writers, the 50 funniest, the 50 funniest writers. I think of the 20th century or was it, or yeah, it was, it was no in American history In American history. Yeah, it wasn't the 20th were, century. It's American history. With, you were there with Mark Twain. Yes. And I, I think it's like Mark Twain, Larry Wilmore, and then 48 other guys. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wait, what? I got my flowers from Andy Burrow. No, it was like, the- it, was, it was a very easy decision. You were so hilarious. I just want to say, and now people are going to get grossed out and just say, get no, it. It was such an honor, guy. I'm, I'm in this book of collections of Andy saying who are the 50 funniest writers in American history. And he included me. It was amazing. Library of America. The very Library nice of America. So it's very prestigious. But um, you, you have... Um, I'm, I, I stand back in awe of your career because you can, you can do it all. I mean, I cannot act. You're a great actor. <laughs> That's I'm, so funny. I've been in a couple of movies and anyone who wants to see them can know that I don't act. I can't do it. <sighs> but, um, but you just keep on moving and exploring new things and everything you do is, is such high quality. So it's, it's an honor. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be in your world for, for this little moment. It's a mutual admiration society. Uh, but read the book. Profiles and ignorance. All right. Thanks a lot, Andy. We'll be seeing you soon. Thanks, Claire. Bye bye.